0: British Buddhist monk has three robes. This is called an Sangha or entirely Thai called Jiwa. This is like a one row, a one layer cotton robe. And the monks in the forest, we learn how to cut and sew these robes ourselves. If you notice this pattern here, this is supposed to resemble the, the rice fields of in Middle <coughs> India. Now after we've We've sewn these robes, then dyed them. This robe is, is dyed with the uh, um, dye made from the hardwood of the um, jackfruit tree. This is quite a new robe, and so the, the colour is not completely fixed. So if, if I'm out in the rain, or excuse me, if I sweat a lot, then the, the colour um, will still run. So the first many washings of this robe, you just have the exact amount of water just to keep, uh, to wet the robe without having any excess water, and you just, and it's called soup, rather than um, sap, it's a different verb. So, this is one robe, and this is called the sangati, and this is more or less the same as this robe, but it's two layers. This is the, you know, what's in translations of it called the cloak, but, um, Generally, it's worn over the shoulder in ceremonial, um, okay, on ceremonial occasions. But it was, I also use it as one of the few times I do use it as a cloak is when I come to the West, because it's quite a convenient thing to wrap around. Like in Thailand, you don't really have a concept um, of indoors and outdoors. Um, so you don't have two different climates, like indoor climate and outdoor climate. Um, but this is good for two climates. And then the server of this skirt is called the uh, Um <coughs> Or, I'm sure, Wasaka. So you can only have three of these. You can only have one of these, and one of these, and one of these. <coughs> Sorry, I'm
1: just um, filling in.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and doing a remarkable job, too. <laughs> So, uh, my name is Paul Harrison, so i yeah, please, welcome. No, I don't need the microphone. I'm going fine. Um, there was some indecision. Hello, I'm Paul Harrison from the Host Center for Buddhist Studies, and I'm here to um, do a superfluous job, re- really, is to introduce our speaker who has already begun speaking, so this is very nice. Um, I'd like to welcome you anyway. I'm going to do the introduction now because we're going to go into a 30-minute um, guided meditation with Ajahn Ajayasaro, and then there'll be a 15-minute a break, and then we'll have the talk and questions and answers, I hope. So um, let me just talk. Yes? Yes, all right. <laughs> okay. So um, let me remind you, uh, possibly also Superfluous, to switch your cell phones off if you haven't already done so. Okay, so uh, I'm welcoming you today on um, behalf, as I said, of the Ho Center for Buddhist Studies and the Thai uh, Stanford Student Association and the Buddhist community at Stanford who are co-sponsoring this event. And it's my great pleasure to introduce to you uh, the Venerable Ajahn Jayasaro who was born in England in 1958 and became a disciple of the revered and famous uh, Thai Buddhist, Buddhist teacher Ajahn Cha at the age of 20 taking full ordination under Ajahn Chah in 1980. His life since then has been spent mostly in Thailand, alternating between periods of retreat for study and meditation and periods of administrative and other service, including a term as abbot of Nanachat, the international monastery of Ajahn Chah's lineage, which, as many of you will know, has been extremely important in the spread of Theravada Buddhism to the West, including to my own country, uh, New Zealand. Since 2003, Ajahn Jayasaru has been living alone in a hermitage at the foot of Kauyai Mountain National Park, but giving Dharma talks and meditation retreats at regular intervals at a nearby retreat center. So he's become a well-known writer and broadcaster on Buddhism in Thailand and internationally and uh, particularly a writer on Buddhism and its application to life, especially in the area of education. Ajahn Jayasari spends a month every year outside Thailand, and so we're very honoured this year that he has kindly offered to spend some of that time with us at Stanford and talk to us about moving smoothly along bumpy roads. I think most of us are more used to moving bumpily along smooth roads here, so I'm very interested to hear what... Uh, the Venerable Ajahn Jaya Sada has to say to us tonight. But before then, we're going to go into the meditation. So welcome. And I leave things over to you. It's
0: a bit like one of those the movie, modern movies where you have the action and the titles come up and then you sense the action. So, um, let me see whether I, I... think I should... So, it was 30 minutes, was it? So, if you would like to uh, make yourself comfortable, but not too comfortable, um, the uh, sitting posture is one in which we uh, seek to embody um, the kinds of virtues and uh, qualities that we are trying to develop. Um, through the application of the meditation technique. And so, the um, sitting in such a way that we, um, the body is straight but not rigidly so. And the kind of feeling that we're, we're seeking to create and engender through the posture is one of independence and self reliance. So, you know, in whatever way you can sit, uh, given your own uh, physical um, <clears throat> health and um, uh, limitations, then try to sit in such a way that you do feel self-reliant, not leaning on anything to the extent that um, it's going to impinge upon your sense of yourself. Um, the other important point is to be as still as possible. So the external stillness is not going to create internal stillness, of course, uh, but it does help to promote it. So in the posture that we adopt in the meditation, we are already uh, recognizing uh, and seeking to honor this um, complex and um, central relationship between the inner and the outer. All uh, meditation techniques, um, whatever kind they may be, whether they are discursive or non-discursive, whether they are given titles such as Samatha and Vipassana, they um, are unified in their task of taking the mind beyond the pull, beyond the influence, of what we call the five hindrances. And the five hindrances are, in a nutshell, first the indulgence and enjoyment of um, any thought, any uh, kind of fantasy imagination which we like. It's, It's indulging in delight, taking refuge in that pleasant sense of dwelling on things we like. So it can be a memory or a fantasy or anything. But if we are uh, simply basking in that sense of like, then that's a hindrance of mind. And the second hindrance is um, sense of aversion, dislike, uh, pushing something away, trying to get rid of. And it can, be, uh, can manifest in a very gross um, level as... Um, Dwelling in angry thoughts about a person that we don't like and can also become more and more subtle and be expressed as a subtle moving away from the present mental object. This is a second um, hindrance indulging in the disliked. The third is the hindrance of dullness and sleepiness and laziness. Fourth is mental agitation, worry, guilt. The fifth is feelings of skeptical um, doubt. Doubt is not in itself uh, a hindrance, um, but um, doubt at the wrong time and place or the indulgence in doubt uh, is hindrance. So, whatever meditation topic, whatever theme. Our meditation might um, adopt, it has to take the mind, seek to take the mind beyond those hindrances. The most important quality at the beginning of a meditation is our motivation and the clear uh, determination of why we're meditating? What are our, our purposes? And looking, we look at our mind to observe whether or not there is a sense of uh, refreshment, of inspiration, of interest, of enthusiasm for meditation. Because without that, um, any amount of theoretical knowledge of meditation techniques and skillful means uh, will not be effective. There has to be the emotional underpinning for any um, meditation practice. It may be that the sense of interest, enthusiasm, commitment is there already, in which case uh, we turn our mind to our meditation object In the case that it's not present, then we should not begrudge the time spent on cultivating that feeling of interest and enthusiasm. And we should learn to observe um, what themes, what topics, what thoughts, what recollections will uplift the mind and give that mind a sense of interest and enthusiasm. It might be recollecting the virtues of the Buddha, recollecting some uh, wise reflection, or could be recollecting the the face or the memory of meetings with great teachers, those who have practiced well and received the fruits of their practice. So we, uh, we need to observe what uplifts the mind, what strengthens the mind, and be able to draw upon that resource at the beginning of a meditation session. Without that, uh, the mind, after an initial volitional effort, will tend to get bogged down or get distracted. And then the interest in thought and memory, uh, which is very deeply uh, rooted in our minds, will take precedence over the interest in meditation. Now the meditation on the breath is meditation used by the Lord Buddha himself Um, over the past 2,600 years. Many, many men and women, monastics and lay Buddhists have realized fruits of this training and using the breath as a vehicle. So it's a very powerful vehicle. But the meditation on the breath on one particular point in the body, such as the tip of the nose or the upper lip, or perhaps within the nostrils themselves, is quite a subtle level of mindfulness of breathing and if the mind is still in rather a coarse and agitated state then we shouldn't rush to meditate on or be aware of the breath at that point Um, because premature attention um, on such a subtle foundation Uh, can be very frustrating and lead to discouragement. So as a preliminary exercise to ground mindfulness in the body, bring it to the present moment, uh, we can be aware of sensation throughout the body. There are a number of techniques that may be employed Many of you may have um, participated in, in uh, retreats led by um, Goenka Ji or his students. And that sweeping of attention through the body is a very good preliminary calming exercise or to strengthen mindfulness. A variant on that is to divide the body into four areas. first area is that of the head, the face, and the neck. And breathing in and breathing out in um, a relaxed but um, alert way, we observe, we awaken to any sensation arising throughout that area the head, the face, the neck, without choosing, without visualizing. And if there are no sensations at all, that's all right. But the effort to be aware as you breathe in of all the attendant sensations arising in that one area, breathing in, breathing out. The second area of the body is the area including the shoulders, the arms, the hands, and the fingers. It's breathing in, breathing out, being aware of the sensations appearing, disappearing, arising and passing away um, wherever, however they appear. Throughout the shoulders, arms, hands and fingers. The third area of the body is the torso. She breathe in, breathe out, being aware of sensations in the chest, Tummy, the abdomen, the whole of the back, from the base of the neck to the coccyx to the tailbone, noticing whatever sensations arise with equanimity, without choosing, without liking, disliking, awakening to something that's already there, not creating something, just Um, opening our eyes, our internal eye, to the very normal, natural sensations arising throughout the body together with the in-breath and the out-breath. And lastly, We awaken to, become alert to any sensations arising the lower half half of the body from the hips down through the legs to the feet and toes. Breathe in as we breathe out. Nothing special, nothing mystic, nothing incredible. Very normal, natural, everyday feelings that we generally take no interest in, but which can provide pegs for or foundations for mindfulness. And lastly, the fifth leg of this practice is to open tension to the whole of the physical body from the head uh, through the face, the neck, shoulders, arms, fingers, the hands, fingers, the torso, um, the legs, the feet, the toes, to breathe in, breathe out, awakening to this whole mass, this whole flow of sensation. Throughout the physical body, they're just coming home to this sense of the body here and now. Nothing special, nothing amazing, but that alert careful, bright, respectful attention to the present moment, whatever the content of the present moment is truly nourishing to the human heart. Now, if our mind is moving around a lot, if we've had a busy day and there's still a lot chasing around, then never mind. Um, Don't indulge in frustration. Um, We can't force this process, this calming of the mind, this clarification of consciousness. We can repeat this exercise again one by one, the area of the head, the face, the neck. Secondly, the shoulders, arms, hands and fingers. Thirdly, the torso. Fourthly, the lower body from the hips to the toes. And then lastly, awareness of the whole body. We can repeat that as many times as we like, if the mind is settling down a little and there's a sense of readiness, then we choose one particular point in the body and establish our attention at that one point. Now we're not following the breath within the body following it outside of the body and we're not concentrating in a sense of that very stiff and rigid internal staring at the object. That's not the way to samadhi. So I'd like you to consider enjoying your inhalation. The whole of the inhalation, the beginning, the middle, the end. That sense of enjoyment and enjoy the sensation of the breath as it leaves the body. At that one point, one point where there's the contact of the breath. So see how how that feels. Changing the idea, of the framework or what you understand um, to be meditation. You see how much of a burden falls away when you don't feel you have to concentrate on the breath, but simply to enjoy it. Or another um, way of looking at this practice is to say we appreciate the breath. This is we appreciate a very fine, subtle um, work of art, sustaining this appreciation of the whole of the in-breath and the whole of the out-breath. Sustaining it throughout the duration of the in-breath, duration of the out-breath. So seeing which, which suits you, the idea of enjoying or the idea of appreciation The the breath is a vehicle for awakening. The mind uh, should be alert and wakeful. We are awakening moment by moment with the breath as the vehicle for awakening. So any dullness and stiffness of mind um, is not... A part of practice. It's a deviation from the practice. If your mind is very dull and stiff, then one method that can be used uh, to deal with that hindrance is to make use of the perception of light. So as we breathe in, we imagine a flood of bright light, not harsh light, very bright, warm, healing light, flooding the body, flooding the mind. And we breathe out, and it's as if this bright light is spreading from all our pores, it's leaving the body with the, with the exhalation. So meditation is learning how to deal skillfully with all of the challenges that arise. It's how we um, learn, it's how we become wise to the ways of the mind. We learn how to cope with, deal with and benefit from every mental object. So dullness and stiffness, we can employ the perception of light as a skillful means. And then return to the simple appreciation of this beautiful, subtle phenomena, which we call the in this beautiful, subtle experience that we call the out The mind will wander, everybody's mind wanders, never mind. But don't get in the trap of frustration and depression. Simply recognize this as a normal, natural phenomenon. And return to the breath.